The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. Our guest today, Dr. Peter Lovett, is a dance psychologist, founder of Dance Psychology Lab, which is part of Movement in Practice Academy. He's also a teacher at the Royal Ballet School, where he really explores, I guess, also in his work with uh, the Movement in Practice Academy, he explores the interface between movement neural and neural computation and experimental cognitive psychology. So one of the things he's going to have to do for us is explain what all that means. His new book is called The Dance Cure, The Surprising Science to Being Smarter, Stronger, Happier. A review of the book is in the March-April edition of Spirituality and Health magazine. Dr. Levette, Welcome to Essential Conversations. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. You know, your your book opens with a proclamation that I found personally incongruous. <laughs> and you wrote, we are born to dance. I am born to sit the dance out. <laughs> I'm an exception to your rule. Uh, What's the evolutionary advantage of the human capacity to dance? Well, dancing, I do believe that every single human being is born to dance. And if you choose to sit the dance out, then that's a lifestyle choice. But you're going against what you're fundamentally born to do. The evidence for the fact that we're born to dance is that dancing is a universal activity You know, people have been dancing since the beginning of human time. We know that there's no culture anywhere in the world where people don't have an urge to move and synchronize their movements to other things, to either music or to other people. And we know the benefits of dancing are extraordinary. So what we know is that when people dance together or move together, it changes them in four ways. And all these four ways are fundamental to human society. Firstly, it changes people's social relationships. We know that people bond together when they move together in synchrony. I'll go into more of that detail later on about that. The second thing is that it changes the way that we think and solve problems. The third area is that from an emotional perspective, we know that movement helps us to express emotion. And what's extraordinary is that other people's brains are are, are set up so they can recognize emotions in our movements. And fourthly, movement changes us physically and dancing changes us physically, not just our heart and our lungs or our muscles, but our hormones and our neurochemicals. So we know 
When we combine all those four things together, the social element of dancing, the thinking aspect of dancing, the emotional element of dancing, and the physical aspect of dancing, then all of those serve really important evolutionary functions. And that's why we think dancing has persisted, despite many people not wishing to dance. And in fact, (laughs) some societies try to stop people dancing. Oh, that's true. Some religious societies consider dancing uh, satanic. Absolutely. I mean, there are, I mean, people have been banned for dancing. People have been beheaded for dancing, recently beheaded for dancing. I mean, it's an extraordinary thing. that Now, some of that speaks to the power of dance. We know that when people move their body, they move their body in a way which is related to their hormone levels and their, you know, their testosterones and their genes. So we know that a person's hormones influences how they move their body. And we also know that when people watch somebody else dance, they pick up signals about their fertility levels and about their hormone levels, which is even more extraordinary. So you can understand why some people thought, you know, there was satanic reasons why we were dancing, because we were communicating something that's really fundamental about who we are. And when you get societies who try to repress a society, then of course, something like dancing is bound to be repressed, because it's so wonderfully gooey and expressive of who we really, really are. So dancing, you see it in in other primates. Uh, You do see movement. Yeah, you do see so in some primates and also in birds. So we're not the only species to dance. Um, I mean, you certainly see that something like sensory motor coupling, the idea of, of moving in response to certain stimuli. You see that in birds and you see it in some primates. But humans, even two-day-old babies, can perceive rhythms. And we know just from five or six months of age, when you play musical rhythms to young children and babies, they start shaking their body in response to it. And they smile. All the babies do this. It's extraordinary. It really is an innate activity. So do you think the rhythm is because they were, you know, while in the mother's womb, they were listening to the heartbeat? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we are when people tell me that they've got two left feet or that they're not rhythmic, I always know that they're just making that up. It can't be true because our hearts beat in rhythm. Our brains, the the synchronization of our neuronal functioning happens in synchrony. Um, We walk generally in time. Our arms swing in time when we walk naturally. So we are fundamentally rhythmic beings. And of course, a baby. And when when we talk about two-day-old babies recognizing rhythm, of course, these aren't two-day-old babies. They were born two days ago, but they've been living inside the womb for a long time. And they've been, they, they've been hearing the rhythm of their mother's heartbeat for months and months and months and moving in response to their mother's movement. So, yeah, there's some really interesting studies looking at the differences between babies born of dancing mums versus babies born of non-dancing mums. And there are all kinds of, of habits in later life. So we know that the children of dancing mums need to be rocked to sleep more than the babies of non-dancing mums. And we know they're more likely to pick up musical instruments and play them. So there's a lot that's happening in the womb and before the child is born. Wow, that is fascinating. You know, while you were talking, I I flashed on something that I was involved with uh, years and years ago. I I don't remember exactly when I was part of this conference in Prague in the Czech Republic. And the meeting was not going well. These were all adults from a variety of countries. And it wasn't going well. And then... Unbeknownst to me, someone decided that I should fix that. And the the convener said, you know, Rami, do something to help us get through this impasse. And without having a clue what to do, 
I just instinctively asked everyone to come together in a, in a huddle. And I asked each person to put their hand on their chest and find their heartbeat and tap on their chest to the rhythm of their heart. And within a few moments, even though I imagine everyone's heartbeat was a little bit different, we were all tapping in, in sync and rhythm. And then we started doing this chanting, and there was a Hindu guy there who took it into Sanskrit, and people began to move together, chant together, and drum together using their chests as the drum, all in sync. And it absolutely changed the dynamic in the room. And the conversation went much more smoothly thereafter. Is that an example of what you're talking about when you talk about these four things? I mean, it seems to me that was an expression of social bonding. It ultimately seemed to change the way we were doing the problem solving we were engaged in. I don't know about emotion or or the physiological changes in the neurochemistry, but I, I imagine all four things were engaged in that example. Is that, is that, am I on the right track? Absolutely. I mean, that example is just really perfect because it shows about that synchronization. When we, when we have real examples, well, wouldn't it be wonderful for, for starters if we could do that in the broader society all the time to bring societies together? Wouldn't that just be wonderful if we could feel our own heartbeat and then express that through our movement and coordinate that with other people's heartbeats? It's kind of what happens sometimes in, in dance cultures, in, you know, going to nightclubs and things. But what, what was happening right there? was that we know from the scientific studies, laboratory-based studies of synchronized movements, they were very similar to that. We know that when people synchronize their movements, even complete strangers, afterwards, they report liking each other more. They report trusting each other more. They report being more similar psychologically in terms of their values. So their, their values and their goals seem to be more aligned. And the fourth thing, which is truly amazing, is that people are more likely to show pro-social behavior, helpful behavior towards other people when they've been moving with them in synchrony. Now, this pro-social behavior has even been shown in seven-month-old infants. When you move a seven-month-old infant in time with somebody, it displays more pro-social behavior. And we know this happens in teenagers and in adults and in older adults too. That coming together, so that experience you had there in that room which is extraordinarily powerful. You know, when people say they don't dance, the reason I push back on that is that you might not do ballet or ballroom or hip-hop dancing, but that you just described there was a perfect example of group dancing because it's all about moving together in synchrony and being each other's rhythms and finding each other's rhythms and moving together. And that's why we think dancing is so important for bonding societies together. You know, and and certainly in... Spiritual circles. Uh, well, that that was an inadvertent pun. But there's a lot of circle dancing. I'm thinking of uh, you know Hasidic uh, Jews dance in circles. Sufi zikr, which is done in a circle, often you know a, a slowly moving circle. Even uh, I mean, you see the sort of the dancing that erupts with Hare Krishna devotees. What's the connection? If if we if it isn't really just what you just said, is there a, a documented connection between spirituality and dance? We know that people enter into a trance-like state when when they move, and certainly the case of things like circle dancing, where people there's a repetitive nature to it, and there's a certain predictability about the movements. Once you get into those movements, uh, there's, it's also a structured movement people then report an altered state of consciousness. 
So they report getting into either a flow-like state or they lose track of time or they think differently. And then during those experiences, many people then report being closer to something other than what's present in the room. So it seems to be opening their minds and allowing them to connect on a different level with something else. I'm wondering, and this is obviously pure speculation on my part and perhaps completely <laughs> irrelevant, but I'm wondering if in, in the area of the neurochemical changes that dancing triggers, if those are similar to things that might happen to people in meditation or prayer uh, or even even uh, those worship services that are physically energetic, like Pentecostal or something like that. Is there any corollary there that this is a way to get to altered, you know, what you might get through a drug or you might get through uh, pranayama, breathing exercises, that somehow this kind of dance that you're talking about, or maybe just dance in general, can lead to these spiritual moments of spiritual awakening? Well, I can't speak of what happens in the brain during meditation and prayer, but I do know that when people are dancing, then there's a change uh, in opioid production. And also we have these other sort of happy hormones being released, of course, endorphins, of course, but the opioid system is really important. And so when people... Now, of course, we get that too in breathing exercises too, when, when we get synchronized breathing and people are there, we can lead to these same neurochemical changes. So it does seem to be that there is some similarity, certainly between what's happening in the brain while you're dancing and what's happening in some of these breathing exercises. We know that during the when people are dancing, there's a wide range of activation in different areas of the brain. So, for instance, the putamen becomes active. And there are several different regions depending on the style of dancing we're doing. Of course, one of the problems with dance is that people think that dance is one thing. So they say, oh, yes, I do dance, or no, I don't dance, because they think dancing is one thing, whatever they think it is. But actually, dancing is a, it's almost like a, a meaningless term in some sense, because dancing can mean so many different things, so many different types of movements, and those different types of movement will have different impacts. So, for instance, we know that whether people do structured dancing, like the circle dancing you were talking about earlier on, or whether they do improvised dancing, so spontaneous moving, creating movements on the spur of the moment without any pre-planning. Those two different types of movements have different consequences on human thinking and problem solving. We know that when people engage in very structured movement, they become much faster thinkers. So their thinking speeds up. They're much more able to find answers to convergent problem-solving puzzles. I mean, a, a convergent problem-solving puzzle is a puzzle where there's one correct answer, but you have to take multiple cognitive steps to find that one correct answer. Whereas when people move their body in an improvised way, they become much more creative in terms of their creative thinking, in terms of their divergent thinking. And divergent thinking is the thinking where there's not just one right answer to a problem, there are thousands potentially of correct answers to a problem. So the different type of movement will have people thinking in different ways. And so I should imagine that when people are in meditating or in prayer, then also that would change their thinking as well in different ways. I'm wondering whether by chanting a prayer, it, it becomes very convergent thinking because it requires the repetitive nature, perhaps. Whereas in other types of meditation, maybe that 
the idea of, of getting rid of some of the clutter might enable you to be more creative in your thinking. So it might be the case that different types of dancing correlate with different types of prayer or meditation or, or breathing exercises. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. It'd be interesting to know if there was a correlation. Then if you had a certain kind of problem, you could, oh, wait, it's time to waltz. No, that's true. <laughs> well, you, you can you, you can do that at the moment, which is, which is great. If, you're, if you've got that kind of, kind of problem where you've got a stuck problem in your head, there are certainly prescriptions for types of movements you can do. And what's fantastic about dancing, it's like meeting a room full of people who are completely unique. And each person you meet has a completely different personality and character. Well, dancing is the same. Every type of dancing that you engage with has a different personality and character, and it's going to influence you in different ways. So it really is the case that if you want to solve a problem, there will be a dance that when you do that dance, it will help you unlock some of the, the, the stuck thinking that is preventing you from finding the solution. So is this the kind of thing that you're promoting? I mean, it just seems to me this would be something that, they, that we should learn in school oh. as part of our problem-solving toolbox. Yes, yes, yes. We should be learning this in school. We should be knowing about movement. I mean, school is a can be an awful environment because we sit people down. We say to them, sit still, don't fidget, don't move. You open your head and learn all this content, which we know is the wrong way to learn. What we need to do is get people moving around and having some relationship with their body, you know, feeling confident with their body. We know that because when you move your body, it changes your mood. Even in hospitals where people have been admitted for low mood and depression, then when people get up and dance, then their mood and depression levels change. Their depression is reduced. But also their thinking and problem-solving skills are improved. Now, of course, we've done some work with people with Parkinson's disease. So Parkinson's disease is a neurodegenerative disorder, which causes not only movement-related problems, but a whole range of other problems, problem-solving, chewing, eating, social interaction, a whole range of things. What we found is that when we had people with Parkinson's engage in dance activities, then some of their problem-solving helped them. So for instance, if you've got a tremor in your right hand, so imagine your hand tremoring, now imagine trying to drink a glass of water with that hand, you might spill it all over you. So this becomes a creative thinking problem of how can I drink with a trembling hand and not spill it over myself? If you've got a problem with chewing and swallowing, and you've spent 50 years knowing exactly what to eat and drink at mealtimes, and suddenly you can't chew and swallow that food, it's a creative problem-solving task to come up with a whole new set of menus of things that you can eat and enjoy eating. And thirdly, imagine you're laying in bed and you can't get comfortable and you get bed sores because you can't move in bed anymore. Well, finding new positions and ways of moving your body again becomes a, a, a creative problem-solving task. And we know that when we carried out these studies of people with Parkinson's disease and we had them doing some improvised movements, those are the types of things which improved. So real real life activities. Now in schools, we know that children can learn differently if they move. 
interpersonal relationships are different when people move. We know that physically, nearly 10% of deaths are caused by inactivity. And the wealthier the country, the higher that number is. Inactivity is a killer. And what we can do, if we can, people are so intimidated by movement that we need to get more and more people moving. It will save lives, it will bond societies, and it will make people healthier and happier. Well, it it just seems obvious when you say it. So uh, I I hope everyone is thinking to themselves, well, where where can I start doing a little bit more, put more dance into my life? But not all the dances are positive. I'm not sure that's the right word. I was fascinated in your book about, there's a section called Power and Feeling Empowered. And you talk about a dance that is, is associated, that expresses, you write, a, a means of expressing aggression and intimidation, and it's linked to rugby. Yes. So I don't know if I'm, is it, it's H-A-K-A, is that Hakka or? The, the Hakka. Now, now this started originally, and it wasn't originally a rugby dance, it was a war dance. And, and societies would use these war dances before going into battle. So the, 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 the armies would face each other and they would stand. And you might have 100 people on one side and 100 people on the other side. They'd have spears and they'd have shields. And then they would do this war dance facing each other. So one group would do it facing. And the idea was to bond that group of people together, but then instill fear and intimidate their opposition. So we're communicating this emotion. Now, of course, then the New Zealand rugby team took this on as something that they did at the beginning of every rugby match. And so they would stand in the rugby pitch and they would do this dance in front of their opponents. So, of course, to try to instill fear in the others and to bond themselves together. So war dances have been used for thousands and thousands of years. And uh, yes, so you can communicate aggression. It's not all, I mean, we've done some work in prisons. And in prisons, we do this, in male prisons, there's a lot of very frustrated men who have pent up emotions and angry and aggressive, and they, you know, they're feeling all kinds of emotions. And using movement with those people as a way of allowing them to express their emotion, to get out some of their pent up tensions is fantastic. And you can see the energy coming through those guys because it's a way of helping them you know, release that emotion, which typically we're not allowed to do. So that the two warring parties are dancing at each other. It's a shame that, that dancing at the same time didn't produce a sense of dancing with each other. And they would say, oh, let's just have a dance-off rather than attack each other with oh, our spears. That would be so lovely, wouldn't it? I mean, if we could, yes, if we could dance together, then that would, would, would be a lovely thing to do. Yeah. Which sort of brings me to my last question. Near the very end of your book, I mean, last couple of pages, you reference the film Jojo Rabbit. And I'm just going to read the paragraph to you and then ask you, ask you this question, and that'll be, that'll be the way we, we, we go out. So you say, dancing makes us happy. It's as simple as that. In the, 19, in the 2019 film Jojo Rabbit, uh, which tells the story of Johannes Jojo Betzler, a devoted Hitler Youth member who finds out his mother is hiding a Jewish girl in their attic, there is a wonderful moment when Jojo asks the girl, what is the first thing she will do when she gets her freedom? Her answer is immediate, dance. And then you close the book out, but I'm not going to end it there. I want to I wanna ask you a question. So the, the first thing she wants to do to express her freedom is to dance. After reading your book, her, I mean, I saw the movie, 
And it fits the movie. Okay, I get it. But after reading your book, her answer seems far more profound than when I first heard it in the movie. I have a sense that when we are all free, free from fear, free from illusion, free from what Albert Einstein called the optical delusion of being separate from one another and from nature, when we're free from all of that, we will dance. Sort of just natural. And of course, dance is natural, but that will be the first thing we do when we're liberated from you know, fear and illusion and this false sense of separation. So my question is this, how optimistic are you about human liberation and our capacity to reach that moment, like in the movie, where we're, we're free and the first thing we do as, a, as humanity is dance? I'm hopefully optimistic. I'm, I've been in a very fortunate position where I've stood in front of very large groups of people, some very small groups, but very large groups, sometimes up to 10 or 11,000 people in a room where they're all dancing. And the joy and the peace that comes from that dance and the naturalness that comes from the movement, you really see. Some people said that dancing is a window into the human soul because you see the real human being, the essence of the human being, the, the fire burning bright that comes out when they dance. So knowing that exists, and knowing that that exists even in situations, terrible, terrible, terrible situations where people are really close to the edge, where all kinds of atrocities are, happen, are happening, then to know that that spark, that flame inside of someone's human soul is still present is a mark of hope. And I think that is what we live for, isn't it? That sense of hope. People in, in Syria going through a, a kind of war, a terrible, terrible war, where buildings, oh, people's livelihoods are being destroyed completely. Everything is being destroyed, physically, emotionally, societally, everything is being destroyed. And people there are saying, you know, we long for the time where we can dance. We just want to dance because that represents normal life. That represents the the thing that we need, the expression of our human soul. And that's what dancing does. It allows us to express our human soul. So I'm, I'm hopeful we can get to that point. Well, I'm going to rest on your hope <laughs> because I, I think you're right. I think that, you know, not just in Syria, but around the globe, and especially in this time of, of pandemic, the need to dance is crucial. Our guest today, Dr. Peter Lovett, is a dance psychologist and author of The Dance Cure, The Surprising Science to Being Smarter, Stronger, Happier. A review of the book is in the March-April issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. You can learn more about his work on his website, peterlovett.com. Dr. Lovett, thank you so much for talking with us on Essential Conversations. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this time, and I hope we have the opportunity to chat again one day. Write another book. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then maybe we can dance. Oh, that would be great. <laughs> Thank you. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is the bi-weekly podcast of Spirituality and Health magazine. If you like Essential Conversations, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show on your preferred podcast app. You can also follow me on Spirituality and Health's website, where I now write a regular column called Roadside Musings, and on my new podcast, Conversations on the Egg. 
And don't forget to subscribe to the print magazine as well. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker Trupiano, and our executive producer is Catherine Drury Wagner. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Farber, and I'm an author, teacher, psychotherapist, and shamanic practitioner. On my podcast, Healing for Your Soul, I welcome some amazing guests and introduce you to some healing techniques like earth magic, working with nature and animals, and really getting to the heart of what is keeping you stuck. I want to help you deepen your spirituality and let go of blocks that are holding you back. Let me help you in this journey called life. Part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network. Subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode.